Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Robin Goebel, who will speak on the use of rhythm and movement in therapy. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Robin Goebel, who I'm very excited to talk to. Um, She's a psychotherapist specializing in adoption, attachment, and trauma. She's a licensed clinical social worker, and she's a registered play therapist supervisor. She's also the founder of the Central Texas Attachment and Trauma Center. Robin works with young children and their families, as well as adults. She's a speaker, trainer, and writer whose greatest superpower is being with people in a way that makes them feel seen, gotten, heard, and deeply cared for. Robin is also trained in a lot of different clinical models, um, which I think she might share a little bit about during the podcast. But mostly today, what we're going to be speaking about is more specifically how she uses rhythm in her work with children. So hi, Robin. It's great to have you here today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm so excited that you were able to come be on here with me. Yes, thanks, Karen. I'm excited. Yeah. So I know that you do, you know, a lot of different kinds of work around attachment and trauma and adoption. Um, and I, I shared a little bit about that in my introduction of you before we started, but I'd like to give you a moment just to share a little bit um, of what what you would like listeners to know about you and your work and kind of where you're coming from. Sure. Um, so, yeah, like you mentioned, um, basically, like my practice is exclusively around working with families who have kids with um, complex trauma, they've been adopted from orphanages or foster care. Um, and I think I have a similar story to a lot of child therapists in that I was, you know, brought into this field, trained in, um, you know, a very specific way of doing play therapy. And when I took that kind of into the office and it like, it was just a disaster, right? Like the room was a mess and the kids were out of control and I've been hurt, you know, in therapy sessions kind of extensively um, on one occasion. And so just this ever constant, like this, there's got to be more to working with kids with this level of trauma than this and the tools that I have. Um, and so just, again, I think we have a similar story and I think a lot of people who do work, who work with this population do, I was just like, I need more, I need more, like somebody help me, somebody figure out how to, you know, be with these kids in a way that is honoring of them, you know, that isn't me taking over and being in charge of a session, but also honoring the fact that they needed a lot more like co-regulation and co-organization than the children that I learned how to do therapy 
with. Yes. As you probably know, you're telling my story. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very helpless feeling as a therapist when yes. you bring forth some things that maybe you were at least starting to gain a little confidence in that uh -huh. might be helpful and it just feels like it the bottom falls out, you know. And and so it's that quest to to find other tools and and I love how you use the word co-regulation because I think that maybe some folks think we're talking about you know not being client-centered on the child right. Right. but really and, and like you said somehow imposing some external structure but really what we're offering is co-regulation yes sort of loaning them hopefully a more yeah. regulated brain <laughs> a more regulated brain to kind mm -hmm. of help them as they develop skills of regulation so i really think that's an important thing for people to understand hearing from folks who've moved to perhaps more structured approaches um, mm -hmm. and um, a bit more directive. Mm -hmm. So, um, so and that word co-regulation also really fits in with our talk today because yes. you're doing so many wonderful things and I want to at the end, you know, let people hear about your website and your trainings mm -hmm. and all of that. but. I know one of the things that you've been talking about quite a bit is the use of rhythm and movement yes. um, with kids. And of course, having a background as a therapy therapist and trainer, mm -hmm. that's also a very big part of, of that work too. And I'm like, yes, um, you know, let's let's talk more about this and you know, just what you're teaching about this and how you're using it in some of your work. So you know, what, what, what would you want to say about some of that? Um, yeah, so, you know, I feel like I, in some ways, kind of stumbled into using, like, movement and rhythm, but then when I look at my whole life, I'm like, no, I didn't. Like, movement and using my body and regulating in that way has always been a part of my life, and I think I just had a few aha moments of, you know, again, starting out early, I had lots of ways to introduce or, or to bring about some ideas of rhythm for kids. I think drawing from Bruce Perry's work and some mentors that I had, you know, I had my very first office had a mini trampoline in it and some, you know, a few different kind of sensory based pieces of equipment. Uh, I have a minor in music and so music and rhythm. My husband's a musician. Mm -hmm. Oh, so, that's really fun. Just, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have a, a, sometimes it's hard for me to know that about myself, but I do actually <laughs> music, and my husband is a musician, he writes and arranges um, music and teaches, and so music and rhythm have always been this, like, really inherent part of my life, um, and again, like, some, kind of using Bruce Perry's ideas of, um, you know, helping with regulation through m movement and rhythm, um, but I think really what, what, where I took off in this is, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago at this point, I did a couple things. When I um, trained in the ALERT program for sensory regulation, yes, I think just really opened my creativity. I, you know, like seeing these brilliant clinicians doing this work in the occupational therapy field and seeing how like, oh, I can definitely bring some of these ideas 
into the therapy room, but still keep it therapy, right? Like keep a big distinction between like, I'm not attempting to do occupational therapy with children. Right. Um, but, but, but experiencing, I, for me, I think it was the sense of empowerment of, especially with our most dysregulated kind of chaotic, disorganized kids, like having these tools and this understanding of, of regulation through movement and rhythm has allowed me to feel confident to kind of lean in to the dysregulation that starts to, you know, kind of come out in the therapy room as opposed to, you know, having a lot of fear and panicking or feeling like my only tool might be to end a session. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, you know, I have all these ideas at my fingertips where I can kind of look at what their body is already doing in their and their dysregulation might be total shutdown and collapse. Mm-hmm. But the scarier, more overwhelming kind of dysregulation is the big, like all over the room and um, spinning upside down and, and you know, running just, out the door, maybe throwing exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, which can be, there's some safety reasons which could bring about some fear, but. But otherwise, you know, really looking at like the kids are so kinesthetic, dysregulated kids are moving their bodies. It's like, what if we moved in to that and attempted to like co-organize and co-regulate their movement Mm -hmm. and get away from the idea of how do I help them calm down? But instead of, instead of reaching for calm, reaching for regulation and organization in their movement, Mm -hmm. which just felt uh, more exciting and more fun and certainly more honoring of the kids. Yeah. Love to work that way. Like I love, like the more dysregulated a kid, the better. Like I love moving around and jumping around and, um, you know, really having a lot of movement in my day. And then probably about the same time, I also kind of recreationally took my son to a aerial yoga class. Um, it was a private class, like just for me and him. And I sat down in this aerial yoga hammock um, for the first time ever and thought immediately, like, I, I have to have one of these in my office. Like, the kids that I work with need this. Um, and I kind of had no idea what I was doing, but I did. I hired an engineer. He hung the, he rigged a hammock in my office for me. And um, now I use this hammock really regularly for again, like there's so much movement, there's so many ways to kind of lean in and help organize really dysregulated um, movement. And then also, you know, kids with early complex trauma have lacked so many opportunities to even learn about their body. Like, where is my body in space? What does it do? How does it feel? What's the feedback that comes into it? Um, Because either they weren't held or touched or rocked or swaddled enough or they were touched, you know, harshly or inappropriately. So this that I have gives them this constant proprioception and constant feedback about their body and where it is and what it can do. Um, And it's just been, it's so fun. Yes. Yeah. And I think you're, you're bridging also into, you know, sensory processing um, disorder. When I first learned about it, it was called sensory integration disorder. And, you know, that idea of, um, I remember first hearing that phrase that was from an OT I was in a training with, you know, where your body is in space. And I started thinking, wow, like if you don't know that, 
yeah. you could really be slamming things down on tables or banging into people or, you know, I, you know, it's, 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 it's something that we sort of take for granted, <laughs> you know, so, um, and I, I'm glad you're sharing about the alert program. Our, my first exposure to that was Karen Purvis talking about it mm -hmm. years ago. And, mm -hmm. and we, you know, how does your engine run and, and, and some of those materials and, um, yeah, it's just, it's just so exciting. And I love how you, you brought a lot of creativity to this. I think some people would think, well, I know I did early on before I started understanding brain science and all that. I thought, well, that would be a music therapist or that would be a dance and movement sure. therapist. And, and we're certainly not trying to, to step on toes or, or suggest that we're anything like that. But I think recognizing that rhythm and movement aren't just in, in those ways of doing therapy. And we know rhythm and movement for thousands of years have helped people um, yes. heal, you know. Yes. Um, so I just, I think yeah. it's so great what you're talking about. Um, yeah, it's, I just had this conversation just recently about, you know, o, you know, OT therapy, you know, how's it different? How's the same? I mean, it's different. It's so completely different, although we can certainly borrow from each other's ideas and tools. Um, and I've learned so much about how, again, how to kind of organize, help organize a kiddo's system through the sensory world, regardless of what that is. And then, you know, I, I love the idea that as therapists, we, we can do that and we can still maintain our integrity as therapists and also look beyond look beyond the, the movement-based pieces that are coming forward. So for example, I was talking with a therapist just the other day about, you know, how she was having, which, which she was kind of calling these disastrous sessions. And no matter, you know, she was doing lots of crash and bump and they have a sensory room at her clinic and, but every, you know, she thought she was planning these great sessions and really, you know, looking at what this kid needed input wise. And, and still the sessions were just, you know, she was calling a disaster and she was just looking for feedback and support on that. And I, you know, I said, well, you know, really supported her on that, like way to attune to this kid. Like he's getting so much from, from a therapist who's, who's paying attention and looking and attuning and trying, and then, you know, stepping back and trying again, right? Like there's so much therapy in that, like in the rhythm of like, let's try this. Like, oh, that didn't work. Let's try this. And then with sticking with it, you know, that you're not giving up, that you're, you know, you're talking to me about this. You're planning next session. Like there's like, that's attachment work, right? Like there's all these ruptures, all these ruptures, all these ruptures, and you keep moving forward with attempts, attempts to repair and attempts to come back into kind of connection and attunement. And then we can also think to ourselves, is there something this child's trying to communicate to me about what it's like to be in their world, right? Like, like I'm just, I'm always out of control or nothing ever helps or, you know, I, this feeling of helplessness that this therapist was experiencing. Like, is there, is there a place where that kid is communicating? I constantly feel helpless. Please see how I feel helpless all the time, right? So we can go past, you know, this idea of what, what's just the movement this kid needs to regulate. And look at these much, much, much bigger picture things that we're trained to do as therapists about, like, what's even the message behind a session of constant 
ruptures and, you know, challenges of syncing up and coming into regulation. It's not just about, am I not finding the right sensory tool? Mm -hmm. There's so much more to it than that. And, but then I think really fun tool of meeting kids exactly where they are. I mean, like I said, kids are so kinesthetic. They want to move their bodies. Um, and yeah. We, you know, to, instead of getting insistent about this child sitting here, this child doing that, or do, you know, whatever, you know, to look at, oh, this kid, this kid comes into my office, and the first thing she does is lean against her mom's lap and flip her head upside down, um, and she's clearly mildly dysregulated, so I can offer her, like, hey, I'm noticing your body really wants to be upside down. Let's start, let's start today with some hammock work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Hammock. yeah, yeah, that's great. I just love everything you're talking about. So many things that you're talking about and everything that you just said um, about, so there's, so there's regulating a child in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's um, also thinking what the function of this behavior is or what is coming forth of the child's story or the child's experience in the world. There's yes. that piece. There's also, a piece that I like to call persistence. Mm-hmm. And this is where I feel like a lot of times anybody working with these children, therapists, caregivers, parents, wherever, we, when it doesn't work the first time, we just like back off. And, and then we're really leaving this kid in a vacuum in a way. Um, I think it's our natural tendency to think, oh, he's not liking that, or, you know, I'm not going to do that. That's what we, we think. That's respectful. We think that, of course, you back off if a child doesn't like something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem, I think, with that thinking with children with real regulation problems is, like you said, it's a puzzle to figure out. And you have to persist. I mean, we don't do that with a baby. We don't say, oh, I tried that. That didn't work. So, hey, I'm just going to completely back off and let the baby right. figure it out. You know, if we look at an early attachment relationship. Right. And I think that that's, you know, part of where things can kind of, you know, fall apart is, you know, not, not being able to persist. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I really like that you mentioned too is we can have a lot of language that goes with that. Oh, you like that. Oh, wait a minute. That's not working for you. Mm-hmm. And I think all that language is purposeful in terms of helping the child who currently cannot probably articulate their emotional states. This is part of why trying to play them out looked so chaotic. So there's like so many levels there that are really important that you're talking about. Yeah, I think there's such a fine line between just like, like I, I, the persistence and, and I love the language of um, circle security, how they talk about miscues. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a child miscues, we want to, keep, uh, like your word, persist, you know, persist and not necessarily collude with their miscue, which keeps them really stuck in these early kind of relational attachment patterns. And we just kind of verify their, you know, expectations of relationships. This person will give up or this person won't keep going or... Um, this person won't stay strong with knowing that you know, they know what's good for kids and babies or, or whatever. Um, and, and 
noticing and honoring the miscues and staying persistent while also, you know, staying so attuned to a kid that you know when it is time to go a different path or you, it is time to go like, whoa, you know, this, this child is telling me so clearly in this moment that this, this isn't okay. Right. So we don't accidentally, um, you know, be that grown up who is just re-traumatizing to their, right. you know, their cues and their signals in their nervous system. Um, yeah. Really hard. That's so yeah. hard to do. And I think we have to have a lot of grace with ourselves as clinicians that as long as we're trying and we're recognizing those ruptures so that we can have, you know, that, you know, be, be good about the repairs later. Again, like that's attachment work. I mean, that is, I think, the heart of doing attachment work with little kids. And I, I think about, you know, uh, the concept of, like, the good enough parent and, um, you know, the statistics we know about how often we need, to, you know, we want to aim to be in connection and in attunement with a kid. Um, right. That's right. Really about 30%. Right. And so to have grace for ourselves of, oops. Yeah. <laughs> the way I was hoping. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and certainly I wasn't suggesting, and neither are you, it's yeah. never right to back off. I mean- No, 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 of course not. I've seen um, when maybe kids get kicked out of some kind of setting because someone intruded at a time that really wasn't a good idea to intrude um, and the child becomes extremely aggressive and so and then at the same time i think it's important to point out we're not talking about coercion we're not talking about demanding compliance at all costs because i do worry that there is some misunderstanding about that out there and I agree. So really needing to say we are responding to the child's signals um, yes. in an attuned way. So this is very different than, you know, we're going to keep at it and you're going to keep at it until you comply with doing it exactly what, the way I say. Right. Which takes such a level of self-knowingness in a therapist, which is kind of my other really favorite topic to talk about. And I, I don't hear it talked about as much in the play therapy world um, as I would like, you know, is this, you know, being very um, comfortable with ourselves and our self-knowingness and being able to track both systems and myself and the kiddo in the therapy room. I think that when I can really know myself and know what is happening for myself and my body, like the likelihood of, you know, being, really misattuned with a kid goes down significantly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's to the importance of um, good supervision for this yes. work. Yes. And reflective supervision, which also I'm, I'm not seeing. I, in fact, it's often not even mentioned ex- outside the infant and ch- um, infant mental health models um, or, or parent-child psychotherapy. Um, and I just feel so strongly about that because I think the counter-transference and transference and all of that going on in these types of cases is much different. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and, I agree. and it's much easier 
to feel inadequate and feel triggered and feel like um, really lose your way, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I, th I, thought, I think it's great that, that you're bringing that up. So. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, you know, this is something that people need to take time to learn about, but I'm wondering, you know, say, suppose somebody is listening and they're not such, is there like one practical application I could just even try that that would be okay to try in a session with a child, um, recognizing, you know, I, I need to understand this more, but I always like to have a little bit Absolutely. is a, a practical nugget I could think about and and maybe maybe you can also even share you know when you were first starting this I would imagine you mm -hmm. just popped some pieces in sometimes yep. you know so you know maybe a little bit what that looks like um, for for someone who's just starting to want to try to add some of this to their work yeah that's a great point and I um, try to be so explicit about that when I teach of just like you just have to try like just go just go back to the office and try um, so when I, when I think about like music movement and rhythm work I um, put it there's a couple different categories you know I might use some um, movement based stuff to help um, bring down a really hyper aroused nervous system um, and we know that the type of input of proprioception, which is heavy work, like into your muscles, tendons, and joints, is almost always um, helpful with regulation and organization. And what I love the most about the idea of proprioception is, is that like the things that kids do give proprioception, <laughs> like jumping, running, high fives, um, you know, just getting their bodies moving is going to give kids, you know, a sense of proprioception and then as attachment workers and then also again drawing on the work of Bruce Perry, like we can't um, overlook the, the role of relationship when we're working with regulation. You know, Perry is so clear that the two must go together. Um, so we're not going to send a kid out to the backyard to um, engage in some sensory play you know we really want to, to to be with them in it and co-regulate with them so so when i'm looking to just help a kid kind of come into some organization or regulation you know i've got um you know the ideas of uh, again jumping i've got uh, trampoline i've got uh, indoor pogo stick that's really fun that kids like i use the body sock a lot so this big lycra um, it looks like a big pillowcase, you know, kids can get into you. Um, and I love starting and ending sessions with a lycra tunnel that kids crawl, crawl through because mm -hmm. and lots of proprioception with the crawling, with the tunnel. Um, you know, I use a ton of balloons and balls in session because almost always if you like toss a balloon to a kid, they're going to toss it back. Um, it's pretty instinctual just as humans and so now I've got some rhythm and regulation like with the back and forth going mm -hmm. um, and kids love most people love balloons um, I also use a lot of bubbles because bubbles will get a good breath going yes which is also can be helpful yep 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 and so again we're gonna pull in rhythm and um, we can pull in some 
movement-based stuff. If I blow bubbles and I have kids like pop them or try to catch them or whatever, or I can allow the kiddo to, um, you know, use their breath to blow the bubbles. You really can't blow a bubble successfully if you're super dysregulated. (laughs) (laughs) There's kind of this instant way of like pulling in to regulation um, you know, as I get further in treatment, I'll start to very intentionally kind of toggle back and forth between upper up regulating activities, like, like maybe jumping on the trampoline for 20, 30, 40 times. Like let's do jumps. And I, I, I try really hard to hold the kids hands and jump with them. Like not stand on the floor, but still, you know, keep, I keep that connection, keep that co-regulation that we're, we're doing this together. Our systems are going to sync up. And so here I am, but you know, like increasing my heart rate and then let's, you know, reach up to the sky, take a big breath and touch our toes and breathe out, you know, so very intentionally kind of moving back and forth between like, I'm going to get my heart rate up and I'm going to come and bring it back down. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you notice, I noticed like for some of our kids, the, the trigger that like kind of propels them into dysregulation is sympathetic arousal. Um, you know, like that's why these kids have such a hard time going to birthday parties or being on the playground or playing tag with the kids in the neighborhood, right? It's, it's these internal experiences of increased heart rate, increased respiration that their body has learned is a danger, danger, danger signal. So they just right. get into, you know, fight flight. Um, and so helping their body have experiences of sympathetic arousal, of fun, of activity, of you know, movement and laughter in a way that is fun, it's safe, and that I kind of titrate that by regularly kind of intentionally bringing them down. Right. Go up, and then they come back down, and they go up, you know, to really widen their window of tolerance to to tolerate Mm -hmm. just basic sympathetic arousal. Right. Um, and as treatment progresses even further, I find myself using sensory interventions as kind of the support to help them stay in their window of tolerance, maybe while they're doing what we, what we would look at as more kind of traditional play therapy of, you know, doing narrative work or doing sanitary work or doing artwork or, you know, that maybe they're sitting on the exercise ball and bouncing while they're drawing or, you know, place trampoline underneath a kid's feet when they're drawing on the whiteboard and, you know, doing some kind of traumatic memory integration work, Mm -hmm. Um, that there's just a little sensory perception or a little sensory input coming in into their body to help them, you know, tolerate kind of dipping their toe into some of these traumatic memories or neural networks while having the support, like the body regulation support. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that 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 is such a good point that I look at it, you know, and and the 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 way we um, look at it in the treatment pyramid at Chaddock is like that bottom level of regulation and and even further into treatment when maybe uh, trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy might be a piece that could be helpful. I personally believe starting with that is just not effective. Right. Um, 
let's just put that out there. <laughs> but, you know, we've even seen sometimes in a child doing a narrative, having to like, I call it drop back down to just like the really basic movement and things like that to get the child regulated again. And it has really made me wonder how, especially with complex trauma, um, people even use some of these cognitive oriented models without that piece to bring in when mm-hmm. so I mean I don't know the answer to that I'm, I'm just sharing that I, I just think about that sometimes so well this has been such a fun talk and um, I really want people to know how they can uh, learn more about this and types of training you're doing and how to find your website and all of that before we close today. Yeah, you bet. So my, I'm easy to find. My website's just my last name, GobelCounseling.com. Um, and you can find me on Facebook. And um, I've been pretty regularly doing both online trainings and then and traveling. I've uh, had a lot of fun lately doing some travel and bringing some of these workshops around the country. So I'm easy to find. Yes, and you also have a blog. I mean, I don't know if you're blogging as much lately, but I know you have some wonderful archived blogs that yep. you know people could, could look at. And and they could, maybe if someone wanted to, are the trainings you're doing um, where you're traveling one or two day, or how is that? Like if, if, they, if they wanted to bring you to their area, they could just contact you through your website? They can, yeah, they absolutely can just contact me. Um, most of the trainings that I travel with are two days, although we, I also, um, and then we have a three-day training that, that we're doing as well, but I'm also, you know, I work with organizations and agencies to, you know, meet their needs um, if needed. Great. Well, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at the Knowledge Center at chadock.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at chadock.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.